And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf room, high atop the legendary Coach, Coach Street Murder. Murder, murder. <laughs> <laughs> that Take didn't work. Two. Take two. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do that again. So you'd think I'd be, like, on form here. <laughs> and now, coming to you live from the Waldorf room, high atop the legendary Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan with award-winning writer Kids Johnson and returning guest on the Coot Street Podcast! Yay! 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 I got through that Yay, one. Hey! Welcome back, well, Kids. Welcome, sir. Kids, the last time we talked to you, you were not yet a college teacher in Kansas, were you? I was not. I was in, I was, it was hanging fire, but I hadn't started yet. Now I'm on month two. <laughs> What's it like? Well, it's month two. Um, the, uh, so far, things I love about it. Um, I love having my own office. No, I'm kidding. I've always had my own office, but I love the fact that part of my day job is now writing. That's oh. incredibly, incredibly nice. Uh, I love the people I'm working with. I love teaching and um, I'm happy to be in Lawrence, Kansas, which is a town I always liked a lot. So it's good to be here. And things I don't like quite so much are grading papers, which I understand is the universal complaint. Uh, Anyone who likes that you don't want to know. (laughs) Does anyone, even someone I don't want to know. Well, people, well, some people enjoy grading papers, but but you're teaching, you're teaching science fiction literature and writing is that correct well actually i'm teaching fantasy literature and writing so uh the class i'm teaching right now is uh it's fun it's a freshman sophomore honors class and so they're smart and they're used to being the top people in their class which now that they're all in the same class is challenging but they are um uh, and we've been, uh, we just finished doing uh, The Golden Key, which we went through by uh, George MacDonald, 19th century Victorian story. And we went over it with kind of a fine tooth comb because it's like a really important fairy tale. And it's also a classic example of all of the elements that go into, uh, right. you know, crafted fairy tales. So that was a lot of fun. And then I've had some other one courses. It's been a great class. I've just loved doing it. And the writing class, also very interesting. Um, they're all trying zombie stories right now. And none of them have enough setting. Mm-hmm. Ever. Oh, I, I'm so bored with zombie stories. I really, really am. I don't want any more, ever. Ever. But we were, but, but, but <laughs> ever, we ever. Were... Somebody pointed me to one on Strange Horizons and said it was great. And the writing was lovely until you get to, to the point where, and it's a zombie story, and you go, yeah, all right. Right. We're haven't, done. Haven't, well, haven't we seen it all, really? But these are young well, students. This is, you know, the, 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 this is what I'm curious about. That's why I wanted to start asking kids about this. Too. This is probably what your kids know. This is probably what they're familiar with. They haven't been reading a lot of George MacDonald or, or, or C.S. Lewis or probably Tolkien. Do right. they know anything when they come into these classes? Well, uh, in the fantasy class, um, a fair number of them were readers, but for a lot of them, they're reading. When I sort of did the show of hands, how many of you read Tolkien? And, you know, six hands out of 20 showed up. Um, mm. How many of you read uh, C.S. Lewis? And three or four hands went up. How many of you have read... Um, the Brothers Grimm, okay, a bunch of hands went up, but then it turned out they hadn't read The Brothers Grimm, they'd read American versions. Um, wow. How many have read George R. R. Martin, and a pile of hands went up? How many yeah. of them had read Twilight, and every single girl's hands went up, and not a single boy's hands went up? 
So um, they, they don't have a lot of historical thing, but a couple of them have a ton, you know, that they've read everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I, I had students like that myself. I had students who had never read anything of science fiction or they'd read Flowers for All John and didn't think it was science fiction. And then right. I had two, two, two students who were stone Ian McDonald fans of all things. They'd read everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, Try to teach to a group that consists of stone Ian McDonald fans and, and, and elementary education majors who are still you know, working their way through the great concept of fantasy. <laughs> yeah, it is a challenge. Um, I've been giving them, having them do weekly reader response papers, and you can really see some of the people are engaging in very intelligent ways with it as literature, some with it as fantasy literature, and then some, of course, they're just, they don't have much. So they're just sort of repeating what was said in class. <laughs> yeah. That will happen. I think it's, it, it's fascinating. I mean, the, the um, well, we, we don't have to dwell on this because I don't get to teach very often. But we've talked about on the podcast more than once, and it's come up in other contexts since then, that, that science fiction, more so than fantasy, maybe has made itself difficult for younger readers. And, and, and it's, it's interesting to me that if you took a random group of, uh, of, of literature students and ask them how many of them had read George R. R. Martin, you'd get a response like you got. But if you ask them how many had read anything of science fiction, I don't know if you get that kind of response. Yeah, Is there but, anything science fiction work that has the readership that the, the, the uh, A Song of Ice and Fire Ender's has? Ender's Game. Two words. Ender's Game. Yeah. Yes. Isn't that the most taught science fiction book? In, I, I think it's still the best-selling science fiction novel in North America. I think it is, yeah, because so many schools um, assign it. And of course, people are reading in that at that age group science fiction. They just don't necessarily think of it that way. I mean, the most obvious example is The Hunger Games. Yeah, yeah. right. That's true. I or want they to, think that's what science fiction is too. You get that too. It's like, well, of course they read science fiction. They read Hunger Games, but they mm. haven't really read anything else. But, but then doesn't that begin to ask a question that's been going around in the last few weeks, which is, for 2012, what is science fiction? What should it be? And what should its mission be at this point? You know, it seems to be a question that's... I mean, it comes up all the time. Science fiction does two things constantly. It stares at its own navel and asks what it, what it should be, and it claps itself on the back and gives itself awards. Uh, Those are its, its two defining characteristics, actually, far more than science fiction being what you point at kind of thing. And so I, I guess I wonder, is there a matter of like working out why, what science fiction is or should be for readers of this generation, and if you know, and whether that's changed at all? Ah, yeah, Gary, you can take this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not going to take. I, I, I will say this. I, I think. Well, we had um, uh, a week, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking to Paul Kincaid, who had written this long essay. Uh, based on years best in which he described science fiction as being in a state of exhaustion, which is part of that constant angst that science fiction goes through every once in a while. And a lot of people agreed with it. Uh, I guess my feeling about that is that it's one thing to, to, to get to the questions that Jonathan was just asking. It's one thing to say that science fiction may be in a state of deracination or aimlessness or whatever it is. Uh, and mm. we can talk about that and talk about the causes of it. I get nervous when you start talking about what science fiction should be doing or what its mission ought to be, uh, because that doesn't seem to me to be it's 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 not like a um, it's it's not like a chamber of commerce that has to agree on <laughs> right, mission statement. Yeah. 
Okay, I'm, I'm going right. to quib- quibble you with you, Gary, and I'll tell you what I'm going to quibble about, and I'll see what you, the, the pair of you think. Um, there is value in asking the question what it should be and what direction it should take, because whilst you are never going to affect or direct the entirety of the flow of the field, you can affect its eddies and byways and encourage the production of interesting fiction. And it's always worth stopping to look and ask questions so that you can make the field more relevant to the world we're living in. Um, you know, surely one of the challenges is to keep it like that, to keep it as a literature that's relevant and engaged. You know, And if you don't keep asking these questions, do you lose that? I think you can... One thing you can say, you know, what is the purpose of uh, science fiction? I think you are right that it's in, in a period right now where it's not quite sure where it's going. And I do think that uh, Paul Kincaid's article, and then there was another one just a few days ago. Do you remember? Jonathan Macklemont on Ruthless yes. Culture. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Very, very long um, online uh, post about uh, science, sort of riffing off what Paul Kincaid said. But he was also talking about how it was um, sort of stagnated. It seems to me one of the things that the nostalgia that's going on right now, I, with some of it maybe that science fiction doesn't know where it's going, but I think some of it is that that is where science fiction is going right now. That is its movement, is to look backwards. I think that probably will change because it does change. It gets nostalgic and then it starts looking forward again as it you know, gets its teeth into a new sort of topic or a new mode. Um, and then it starts looking back again at different times. But nostalgia is the mode pretty much for all literatures right now. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. w- Want to expand on that? Well, um, I, I said that and then I realized I was going to have to back up my words. But <laughs> it does well, seem I mean, like it, an it, awful it, lot of literary, literary works right now are works written in the 19th century style or they're being written about old topics, or they're riffs on classic novels by other people. Um, and even when they have contemporary takes on it, or um, modern sensibilities applied to it, we are still riffing off Moby Dick or something like that. That's a good point. And I suppose in England, Hilary Mantel would be a good example of that as well. Yes, exactly. Um, so that, that's a move. I mean, I, I, I guess that's probably true. And maybe the science fiction is no more aimless than any other literature is. Um, yeah. But, but there's, there's a part of this argument that seems paradoxical, it seems self-defeating, like like we're longing for the good old days when we weren't nostalgic. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, when we looked forward, we could we look back so we can look forward. I guess so. But not, not as far as here, not, not to the... Well, actually, we do. You know, we look back and then we write a nostalgic science fiction story about that radical year, 2012. <laughs> Well, what I'd like to think is that this discussion, the stuff that grows out of uh, Kincaid's article, the stuff that grows out of Macklemont's discussion, a discussion like this, and as it percolates through the rest of the field, because we're only a small group within the field, is that it's part of maybe the field's ongoing recalibration mechanism. How do you keep adjusting what we're doing to find it to have a way to look forward? I mean, surely uh, what Kincaid and Macklemont are writing about is quite analogous to what Lewis Shiner and Bruce Sterling were doing with Cheap Truth. Mm. They were prodding, they were poking, they were asking questions, they were occasionally being offensive. Uh, Mm -hmm. But up to a point, that's fine. I mean, I was particularly disappointed by parts of Macklemont's article. 
if only because it cast the discussion that we've had here on this issue as attempting to shut down the debate and to dissemble and protect our friends. When yeah, I, which I read and I was like, uh, you know, I can understand perhaps why he is seeing it that way. But, but And there are people that that is exactly what's happening. But that is the narrowest sort of interpretation of what was being said or what is happening currently. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's one worthy thing. of the Guardian, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hopefully the purpose of, you know, what I would like to think the purpose of this discussion is and this podcast is to open up and engage with this discussion. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to Paul, one of the reasons we may end up talking to Jonathan, and one of the reasons we're discussing this now is to actually engage with the, the debate, you know, have some kind of a discussion about it. Because if you don't, not, I mean, not just us, because really we're a small thing in the, in the ebb of the field. But if everybody doesn't engage with the discussion, then it's never had, you know. And I think that's worthwhile. I, I want to touch on something because, of course, Kincaid talked about your work in his article. Did yes, he did. That was and, nice. <laughs> and I'm curious because uh, whilst he was complimentary, he was also yeah, kind of critical in a way of of your big story from 2011, The Man Who Bridged the Mist, which just won awards and will probably win lots more because it's terrific. And what he said was, it seems to be a work of the fantastic, not because of anything inherent in the story itself, but purely because the author has chosen to set them in an in, set it in an indefinite rather than a precise past. Oh, now, he's so wrong. He's now, so see, wrong. Now, you see, in your interview in Locus, which just came out, you say that people keep waiting for the science fictional moment, the storytelling moment, the moment tells them that tells them when they're reading SF or fantasy. The story is pure SF because there's a biology, because there's an ecosystem, but you're not bogging everybody down in your research. Yes. Given that we have this issue that's raised in Macklemont and Kincaid's article about the potential damage done by overemphasizing the value of blending genres and blurring genre boundaries. How do you respond to that about your work and about well, the story? I'm going to say one thing where, because I, I read that, um, what Paul said when he said, you know, this could have been set, you know, in any point across the Danube or something. And one of, this is actually where my, my downplaying my science fiction usually is biting me on the tailbone because mm -hmm. the, um, the society could not possibly, is not a historical society. It's a completely gender neutral society. Um, every person who is introduced in the story is the other sex. I just strictly alternate sex through the entire thing to create the closest I can to a gender neutral society. That's not the way it was back then, but um, that is exactly the way it is in this world and it does change a lot of things, but I'm not hanging a lantern on any of them. Um, because that's, again, not what the story is about. So, Paul, well, I certainly I certainly see why he thought that he was wrong. So, Paul, you're wrong. You're <laughs> um, well, but, this is kind of – go ahead, finish. Um, but more generally, so, so what was the second point of this? And I'll see if I can address that. Or you can ask your question, and then we'll come back. My point? I, I, yeah. I, I guess sort of – okay, if it's intrinsically science fiction – what is the turning point of science fiction rather uh, science fiction point rather than um, oh. you know be, be, because if you look at it you could see, let, let's take Paul's point and and let's say that it, it could have been set anywhere you're saying no because it's a gender neutral society but what if you posit in effect an alternate history set on Earth where uh, mm -hmm. that happened to evolve in some small local area what then makes it science fiction to my well. 
the short, easy answer is that it's fiction about science. And it's fiction, extrapolative fiction about science. Well, it um, certainly has imaginary biology in it. Well, yeah, but even if we set that aside, even if we replace the mist which, uh, with the Danube and, you know, sea serpents, let's say real sea oh, serpents. Yep, but even so, I mean, it still is fiction about science and it's still a fiction about the scientific process. It's also fiction about taking advantage of uh, discoveries you didn't expect and figuring out ways to make those uh, usable for your needs. Um, which is one of the things like old golden age science fiction. It's always full of people, you know, sort of uh, MacGyvering solutions to stuff. Look, that and, was one of my first reactions is that the, I didn't see a lot of, of, of raw science in it, but there's a lot of engineering in it that John W. Right. Campbell would have just loved. Right, uh, right. Literally bridge building problems. Yes, literally a bridge building problem. So it, what else would make it science fiction? Um, to my, I mean, at some point you say, well, if you want to redefine science fiction to exclude something, you can always do so. Um, but to my mind, it's an engineering story, and it's a story about using science, because engineering is a science, um, to solve problems. Um, the fact that it's also got this biology, um, the fact that it's also an alternate culture, uh, society, um, those things are, are also part of it. And a third part of it is just that geography, you would have to put, put this on a secondary world where a geography like this could exist. And we don't have that. You know, there's no imperialist uh, movements. We cannot create mm -hmm. a world without imperialist movement. But in this world, there is none. Um, so there are many, many things that have to operate together to create that world, which could not be reproduced in our world. So, but because I don't talk a lot about it, because that's not what the story's about. It just doesn't come to the fore. Um, Switching to mail. Do, do you think that your story uh, and its reception has been impacted on by the discussion of blurring genres? And what I really mean, really mean by that is there's a, there is now a 10-year-old, at least, discussion about how awesome and fantastic blurring genre boundaries is. Oh, and there's yeah. a lot, and there's a lot that's great about that, right? But does it then create an atmosphere where a story that's intended as not quite maybe analog kind of science fiction, but certainly pure science fiction, uh, because it has something of a fantasy feel to it as you read it, you know, rather than focusing on a hard SF sort of a feel, that people are willing to interpret it a different way than you intend it because of the ambient atmosphere on this on, on this kind of a thing? Um, I feel like they they interpreted it exactly the way I wanted them to. I didn't want them to think about that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that that it's not clear to people, that's, I was fully aware that that was a possible hazard. <laughs> you know, the thing about the blurring of genres, it is true now, we can no longer read something and know for sure what we're starting with. And... Uh, we start a story and it turns out all of a sudden, ta-da, zombies two-thirds of the way through, or ta-da, no, it's all taking place on a generation ship and we won't get there for another, you know, 250 years. Um, but anything like that, um, I feel like one thing it does is it, it makes the reader sloppy in that I think the reader now reads, and if they don't get any signs otherwise, they make a, they don't read carefully. They just say, well, okay, it's like it didn't look like science fiction, so it's not. 
Um, they t and I think that happens with stuff that crosses over into like slipstream and stuff too. Well, it's clearly mainstream, and they forget the fact that there was a ghost partway through. Mm. Well, I part of that is yeah, part of that is what I was. I'm, 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 I'm inventing this term trapdoor stories. Well, there might be one or two sentences or words or events that invite a science fiction or a fantastic reading, mm -hmm. and there may not be. I mean, the other the other issue that Paul was the other story that Paul was taking issue with was was K.J. Parker's A Small Price to Pay for Birdsong, arguing that this is a historical story about a, a composer who's also a serial killer, but it's set in an imaginary historical period. Outside of the fact that its setting is imaginary, he says, it's a mainstream story. It could be about Mozart and Salieri. Um, I don't know yeah. if he's right or not. I enjoyed the story. Well, I, I guess the thing is, to, I mean, I'm, I'm in retrospect onshore myself. I do wonder if... If we look at the ongoing mission of evolving fantasy in the way we look at the ongoing mission of evolving science fiction, you know, because arguably we are trained within the field to look to science fiction as an evolutionary argument in a way yeah. that we don't look at to fantasy in the same way. I mean, it does evolve and change, but I don't think we have the same debate or discussion about it. And I think that's where it leaves the K.J. Parker story as fine as it is, in a kind of odd spot, because you're looking going, well, what is, I mean, when you ask the question, what is the point of, or what is the turning issue within uh, Small Press to Pay for a Bird Song that shows fantasy evolving? I don't have an answer for you. I've got, I'm much likely, more likely to have an answer f for you for The Man Who Bridged the Mist, mm. um, which, you know, I can see in a science fictional um, context and setting, you know. Um, and I'm curious that we don't put that same emphasis on fantasy i'd also say that i mean the point where i shift from maybe the the kincaid discussion to the macklemont discussion is that i think uh man who bridged the mist does not engage in the fundamental flaw that macklemont identifies with which is it first of all doesn't flinch from its own uh, you know the, the the interior of the story itself you know itself and, and, a, and a bad story will flinch away from the impact of itself. But also, what it doesn't do is it doesn't engage in hand wavium. And that, that, I guess, is what Macklemont argues is the weakness of this genre blurring. What you end up is not actually producing uncompromising fiction or excellent right. fiction. You just give the author an easy way out where you set up a set of right. situations that you don't like. And then you just go, oh. and then, whoa, it all kind of got okay. And which then does, that was the year the aliens came. Yeah, you can add that yeah, to the end of any novel ever written, and it changes everything. Um, but, but yes, I mean, I think the hand waving, I, it becomes too easy, and you see this because I'm teaching new students, right? Yeah. Um, and most of what they're giving me is mainstream. Um, but because I've had to be reading some mainstream modernist, especially stuff. But um, one thing that happens in a lot of these stories is they sort of plow along at whatever level they are with their sort of quotidian problems and stuff. And then at the end, somebody dies. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody gets drive-by shooting. I've had that. I've had somebody falls into a coma. I've had, you know, one thing after another. And that is the mainstream hand wavy yeah. It's like this story is sort of, you know, proceeding along. But now I have to make it exciting. And for science fiction, they're like, I have to make it science fiction. So I append the sentence, that was the year the aliens came. <laughs> and now it's science fiction. Yeah. Well, see, that, that, that's also a formula. That's the old New Yorker formula going back to Salinger. Right. A perfect right. day for banana fish. We'll have this very diurnal 
you know, sort of description of in, in that particular story, a World War II veteran, and he's on the beach, and at the end he shoots himself. Um, right. And you're absolutely right. That's been done for 60-some years now. Um, and what students like that are, are, are thinking, I think, is that you need something which will make it a science fiction story, force it into one genre or another. And I, right. what I'm, my point is that there's a difference between an element in the story that requires you to read it as science fiction and fantasy and an element in the story that permits you to read it as science fiction or fantasy. So, so give us examples. Would, would the Pelican Bar be an example of a story that Pelican permits Bar you to? Is, Pelican Bar, I think, is an excellent example of that. And what's an example uh, of the other kind of story? Um, uh, hmm. Because, you know, if you can't think of examples, no disrespect, then it's very hard to apply it. Uh, other than the setting, I don't think that there's uh, anything in a, a small price to pay for Birdsong that permits a fantasy reading. Okay, which means then it's arguably a bad fantasy story, but a good historical story. Well, no. It's, it's, and, it's, and that would say that Kincaid problem, would be correct. Problem, this is the problem you get into. I think it's a good story. Yes, it is. Uh, if you're going to approach it as a fantasy story and it fails to take you into a fantasy world, then it's a failed fantasy story. But why can't it be a good story? Maybe it's not trying to be a successful fantasy Well, I, I think the, the point, and I'm interested in both of your thoughts on this, that Macklemont and Kincaid would put on this, and I don't, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but it's the way I take it, is all that says is that it's a good story, which is great and admirable, but is it enough it, when you put it in the context of the best science fiction or fantasy of the year for it to be just a good story? Doesn't it have to be a good science fiction story or a good fantasy story or even a good science fiction fantasy blending story? Right. I have. Well, that's a little... I... Go ahead, Gary. Sorry. No, you go ahead, Kitch. Okay, what I was going to say is um, when I think about this, this, the sort of the quintessential, the essential actually, and probably one of the first fantasy stories that were secondary world fantasy without magic is, of course, um, Ellen Kushner's Swords Point, which set the bar for mm -hmm. and was the first, I think, that said this is a world where there is no magic. It's clearly not our world, um, but it's going to be presented as though it were a fantasy. And it was inarguably fantasy. Now, if you ask me why I would say that, I would say it's the secondary world that makes it fantasy and also the uh, um, the the romantic nature of the story, that it's uh, um, definitely in the adventure swashbuckling tradition, which is uh, has a lot of resemblances to fantasy. You're, you're sort of saying that the, uh, the, the affect of a story has something to do with how we receive it as, as fantasy or Absolutely. Uh, possibly not as science fiction. I mean, I suppose by that, token there are probably some peter dickinson novels probably michael chabin's gentleman of the road which as i recall doesn't have yes. any fantastic elements in it but it certainly feels like something you could have read in a pulp magazine 70 years ago so that so then are we are we saying we're going to turn an old an old argument in our field on its head you know i would always i remember being told when i came into the field and started having discussions that the way you knew a science fiction story from something else is it turned on something some point of science or something else that made it incapable of being anything other than a science fiction story and if you if you removed that element from the story the story broke and didn't work okay right mm -hmm. are we now saying that having a science fiction setting for any kind of story makes it a science fiction story having a fantasy setting for any kind of story makes it a fantasy story because no. because i've just 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 as an example i have this argument with a friend of mine and a very cordial you know argument i mean you know not not, not a fist fight about Lois and Ross de Bujold as a hard sf writer and mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think she's a hard SF writer at all. 
And I don't think she's a hard SF writer because her stories don't turn on a point of science. Her background, though, is a hard SF setting. So it's a hard SF setting without a hard SF story in it. You know, so it's like, to what point does the setting get to determine what these things are? I think that's um, an excellent question. Yeah. Go ahead, Gary. So. Well, I was going to say, since, since you're at a place where I learned about science fiction as well, it's Kansas, it reminds me of stuff that Jim Gunn used to teach me. And one of the things I remember, it's been in the literature since then, it's a writer named, I think his name was Chester S. Geyer. He was writing not for the pulp magazines, but for the digest magazines like in the early 50s. And he was writing for Western magazines and had written a Western and couldn't sell it. So he simply put it on Mars and changed the uh, <laughs> the, the horses to, to Arthopsers or something like mm -hmm. that. And so And sold it to uh, Fantastic Universe or something. Well, another, what we're accepting in that story is that it's essentially a Western adventure story. But if you change the animals and the setting around, you've made it a science fiction story. Is that... Is that any more or less legitimate than what uh, than what you were describing, Jonathan? No, I, I mean I, I I don't know. So here, here's the thing, and I don't know if it's true for for either of you, but I I'm not I do not have a definite point of view on these things. I find my my viewpoint is sort of vacillating around and trying to evolve into something that makes some kind of sense, and that's why I want to have the discussion because part of me goes I'm happy to read KJ Parker as fantasy. Uh, but I take the point that the only thing that makes it fantasy is the setting. Um, do I think that... This, sorry? Mervyn, Mervyn Peak is another example. Sure, sure. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I don't have a, a firm view yet. I'm kind of... I'm swaying in the wind. I'm, I'm, I'm swayed somewhat by Macklemont and Kincaid. I think they have some very valid points. I mean, there's a book that... I, I'm pretty sure it was Macklemont changed my views on though I'm sure he's not aware of it. Uh, earlier this year, I read a book that's been considered for various, or will be considered for various awards, a book called Aleph the Unseen by G. Willow Wilson, and I don't know if either of you have read it. No. But, but it's an interesting book. It blends science fiction and fantasy. It's, I think it's ultimately a fantasy novel. It's a de debut novel. It's about a young man living in an unnamed Middle Eastern country who's a computer hacker who writes a virus that will allow him to, or a program that will allow him to absolutely identify his ex-girlfriend on the internet just by whenever she types so that he can filter himself out of her world because she said that she doesn't want to see him anymore because hmm. he's trying to honor her wishes you know he says she also said i don't want to see you anymore he said i will now disappear from you right but it also evolves into a thing involving gin and uh, secondary worlds all this kind of thing but the point that was made by I think it was Macklemont, was that, you know, basically what happens is it's not set in any absolute defined Middle Eastern country. It's a fictionalized, unnamed country. That weakens it because it doesn't engage with the politics going on in the world. And also, there are points in its own narrative that it flinches from and makes, mm -hmm. you know, sort of softball decisions. You know, characters who mm -hmm. don't die, who contextually maybe should have. And it makes me think that, I mean, what that made me think is really is the issue, and this is something you talked about in the first podcast, is it the fact that too many stories just flinch away from themselves? Is that really the issue more than is this, pardon me, science fiction enough or fantasy enough? You know, that flinching thing, I think that two things that happen there. One is that they, they are lazy, and I am just like that because I am I have just spent the last two weeks writing around the fact that the, the book I'm working on right now actually takes place in 1778, and it's set in Tashkent, and there's slavery. And 
I was just sort of, I got to a point where either my characters have to go, la, 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 we don't see this, or my characters have to actually engage with it. Historically, probably they would have said, la, 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 we don't see this, but can I as a contemporary writer do that? And I, don't, I think the answer is I can't. So I think one of the things that happens for writers is that um, we lack the, the, sometimes we're just too lazy to do all the work to think something through. So, mm-hmm. like, um, if he were to, or if this author were to actually engage with a specific Middle Eastern country, um, that would mean knowing a whole lot about it um, and a lot of research and stuff. But more than that, it also would dominate the actual story because the story that's being written isn't about that. Yeah. You know, and can you write a story, for instance, set in Palestine that's not about Palestine? You can't. So you put it in a generic Middle Eastern uh, country where you don't have to call it Palestine, and it can be a love story. Yep. It doesn't have to be anything else. But well, then, a good example. Yes, of, one, of the I'm, of one of the things I'm reading right now is um, I'm starting to read the uh, selected stories of Ursula Le Guin. And in the first volume, she writes an introduction in which she describes why she came up with Orsinia, which is this uh, sort of vague Eastern European country, which is a little bit like Hungary and a little bit like some other Yugoslavia, but it's not any one of those things. And, and what she said basically was that she had discovered as a young writer that she really was not very good at writing these moment of truth uh, fictions, New Yorker kinds of fiction. And, but she was still believing that you can't really just go out and write fantasy. So she invented a middle ground. She invented a place that she could write about that wasn't quite fantasy, and yet she could write realistic stories about families and, 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 and politics and that sort of thing. Um, is Orsinia a fantasy world, or is it something, as she says, a way that mediates between writing realistic fiction and writing fantasy. Yeah, which is what Swords Point becomes then as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Swords Point has the same sort of issue. that, uh, uh, in, in other words, you can imagine and it's something set in an imaginary world, which is not a magical story uh, in terms of specific events in it. Um, it seems to me that and, and there are lots of cases where readers basically don't even notice this. Yeah, you know, um, Jim Gunn um, will say that science fiction um, is uh, fiction that you say you could get there from here. It's the fiction where we can see how we would get there or how we could have gotten there. And that fantasy requires a break from reality that you cannot get there. But things like Orsinian Tales or Swords Point or things like that, they're in that gray zone as well because you could see how we could get there from here. We didn't get there from here. But you could see how, you know, given gender equality, we could end up with that world. Or you could see that, you know, what are, with the Orsinian tales, you could see that. So maybe that's also an operant. Hmm. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Conversation <Not sure>. <laughs> No, no it's, yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm... I'm I think it's something we're still finding our way way, way with. I guess my concern always when people talk about uh, science fiction is looking inward. And, and you mentioned, you're absolutely right, Bruce, Bruce Dilling was talking about that in 1983, and uh, Mike Moorcock's editorials in, in New Worlds back in the early 60s were saying the same thing. Um, and that is a legitimate observation to make. Where I get nervous is where uh, looking at the overall shape of the field you decide you're going to suggest to individual writers what they ought to be writing. Um, but is that what these yeah. people are doing? Is that what they're doing, really? Or are they just asking to stop flinching? Stop flinching 
on a on a on an author by author basis is a legitimate concern. If you have an author who you feel, uh, one of the things that Jonathan Mackelmont says, for example, is that China Miegel, since his first novel, has regularly pulled his punches. That yeah. is a criticism that if you're talking about an individual set of decisions that an individual author is making, that's a completely valid kind of criticism to make. Uh, to suggest to an author that he or she is responsible for the direction of the field in some way, uh, yeah. gets chamber of commerce mentality, which I just don't buy. Well, and whether he's, is he flinching or is he choosing, I mean, this is a part of it also. Sometimes you do choose to take one element. You say, I am, this is not a story about Palestine. So sure. it's going to be a story about something else. And is when China yes. backs away from stuff, is he really backing away from it? Or is he choosing to write stories that are not about what this person wants him to write them about? It could be. And you can disagree with an author's choices. I mean, China has said on more than one occasion that his Marxism is not something that un informs most of his fiction. It informs some of it. Uh, but uh, it, when an author basically phones it in, uh, it's perfectly valid for a reader to call the writer on that. Uh, yeah. That's a separate issue from saying the writer represents something that's, uh, that, that's a general movement in the field. Yeah. Yeah, or that you have a duty to engage with this material. Well, that was essentially, back historical, that was essentially John Campbell's attitude uh, was that if you're going to write for me, you have a responsibility to take science fiction in this direction. And, yeah. and he forcefully moved it in that direction, and he created a whole major chunk of 20th century science fiction by doing it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think, are there any writers, I mean, you, you can talk about yourself, kids, or all the friends you know, is, would anybody sit still for John Campbell telling him what to do these days? Yeah, yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. Because look, look at all the people who are just like jumping through hoops to write specific kinds of books. Like, whatever I have to do to write a best-selling urban fantasy, I will do, sir. You know, and that's, John W. Campbell was saying, if you write the kind of story I want, kid, I will publish it. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll pay you the highest rate in the field. And I'll pay you the highest rate in the field. Now, I know people who would sell their children if a publisher said, you know, let alone write a book to somebody else's specs. Um, but I will tell you and um, that there are people who are, um, I think increasingly, there are writers who are feeling constrained in that fashion, not by editors, but by their agents. Yeah. Um, and so I think there is, there is a lot of filtering going on, people being forced in one direction or another. But I don't know how much that's coming from editors at this point. I want to throw well, something in. Jonathan never tells me to write anything. <laughs> <laughs> I want to throw something in here because I think it's relevant. Uh, on his blog, Mike Harrison addressed this issue as well. And this is what he said. He said, a genre's landscape should be littered with used tropes half visible through their own smoke and surrounded by salvage artists with welding sets. Otherwise, it isn't a genre at all. But what mm. Paul, Paul Kincaid describes as exhaustion is something else. It's not creative redevelopment. It's not evolution by bricolage. It's not the boring old being kicked apart to reveal an interesting new inside. It's not even laziness. It's the intense commodification of ideas and styles evacuated of their original meaning and impact and apparently deliberate industrialization of the commonplace and worn out. Mm. Do you think that, that that applies to the field we're seeing around us now? parts of it 
and, and is the is one of the real problems here as well. Not just that this may be what's happening, but what I pick up in the echoes from Kincaid Macklemont that's led to Harrison's comment is that we are, or, well, the, the field which is so self-laudatory, right? As we said at the very beginning of the podcast, is actually recognizing and applauding quite a lot of what appears to be this kind of stuff that Harrison's talking about. It's true, but is that a, is, it, is that a crit- criticism of the readership or, or, or the awards uh, processes that go on, or is it a criticism of, of, of the fiction? Again, well, well, I mean, to, to put words in these to put words in these people's mouths, I'm going to say suggest to you that when we talk about the field, we talk about effect, uh, active interested readers. We talk about awards processes. We talk about conventions. We talk about mm-hmm. writers and publishers and editors as a as a group, uh, maybe an amorphous, morph, an amorphous group that don't always coordinate with one another, but nonetheless a group. So yeah, I think we, yeah, he is. Okay. Um, where does that leave us? Are we recognizing the wrong things? Yeah, sorry. Well, no, we should say both in terms of of, of Jonathan and Paul and and Mike Pearson. They've all mentioned examples of what they... I have a great deal of respect for. I mean, uh, Jonathan, uh, for example, mentioned uh, an Adam Roberts novel. He mentioned the Hemond. Mike mentioned the mouth of the river of bees, as a matter of fact. Indeed, indeed. Uh, yeah, so, he did. Yeah, which is great, and I think deserved. Um, but obviously, he thought, and I'm not trying to embarrass you at this point, kids. He thought there was something going on in that story collection, which represented genuine new energy in the field and a genuine um, movement in some kind of a direction that wasn't simply uh, bricolage, as he put it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is. Interesting to me because those stories are all so different that it's really easy to see them as bricolage. You know, it's like here's a piece from one sort of mode or style of science fiction or fantasy. Here's a piece from another mode or style. So, uh, I mean, I was very complimented that he thought that um, and um, honored. And I'm not altogether sure why. The only thing that I know that I try never to do is to be weak about a story. Um you know, I try never to back down, and maybe that's maybe that's the fear because I'm thinking about like the Hugo nominees this year, and I'm wow. thinking about this year's um, Sturgeon finalists and stuff like that. And I think that there's a lot of stuff that you know that a lot of the stories that Kincaid was calling out, it's like there was nothing new happening there. Um, but I think what really was not happening there was that these people were not going deeper than, you know, a certain level, but that's the fault of the writer, not the fault of the genre. Well, hang on, but is it not the fault of the genre if that is the story, the story that doesn't go deeper ends up on all the major awards ballots? Hmm. It's the fault of the awards ballots, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> but, then, but then, I mean, you, you say that, and I understand, but uh, let's look at the Hugos, right? The Hugos aren't the fault of the hmm. awards ballot, they're the, the fault of a thousand people voting. Peter's vote, yeah. You know, uh, and we can we can dismiss the, the nebulas because it's just a little you know it's, it's a writers' club and they all vote for for their best friends. Not fair, but we could do it that way. Oh. But I mean, these these awards they spread out to readers. They're representative of the of the gatekeep you know the much loathed gatekeepers in our field. Um, so you know there is a thing where people are choosing to place value for whatever reason on 
works which do flinch away. Now, I mean, I will say as well, I mean, I don't want to be a big part of this this discussion particularly, but I have some sympathy for the, the diet of, of reading uh, argument. Uh, I do like to watch When Harry Met Sally occasionally. I do want to read a cozy spaceship story occasionally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, and I don't have a problem even with a cozy swords and sorcery story, you know? But um, I think we maybe I don't want to lord a cozy spaceship story as the best of what we do. I, I'm happy to enjoy it, but I don't want to say it's the best. I would rather look at work that's that's trying to do something different and more challenging and i realize i mean you know i have to be careful here because as one of those gatekeepers and as somebody who's done a best of the year and published anthologies sometimes i well, no, often i will include stories which do flinch and which do are cozy this and that but which i thought were worthwhile for some other reason than their unflinchingness so you know i have to be careful in how i look at this because i'm as much a part of the the, the problem is anything else. You know, when you talk about category, this is, a, or, you know, sort of subgenre, I, it, I see a possible solution, a radical solution, because I know that mysteries and romances, when they give awards, because they, like us, love to give themselves awards, uh, they, they give them not just by length, but by type. Mm-hmm. So there is a best yeah. cozy mystery. There is a best hard boiled. There is a best. And maybe one of the problems is that you're putting, you know, odd little, you know, um, slipstream pieces next to George R. R. Martin. And how do you judge those two? You know, you have two completely different readerships. You cannot tell me that hard boiled yeah. and cozy get the same readers or that they get the same numbers. But what that means is the people who love the weird little slipstream or love Kelly Link are comparing Kelly Link to other writers like Kelly Link and not comparing Kelly Link to George R. R. Martin. So well, maybe that's what we need. We need, like, best space opera story of the year. Well, I mean, it's the, the, the romance writers. I've got a neighbor down the hall who, who uh, was an officer in romance writers and writes. They've got amazing categories. They've got categories that... Uh, that, that, that uh, the Grammy Awards would be envious of. They've got a category for best romance with strong romantic elements, best historical romance, best gothic right. romance. They must have 30 best categories. Best Regency romance, best Georgian romance. I mean, who knows what they got. Best romance where a dog figures in Chapter 4. Can I just say, a little part of me is enchanted by this little part of me, no, a big part of me, is recoiling at horror, in horror at the idea of proliferating even more awards in well, our field. Because, I mean... Uh, it, it's not unfair to say that genre fiction generally, I guess it seems, mysteries have, have a few, romance have a lot. We have awards every month. You know, surely we don't need more, do we? We don't, but on the other hand, there's a point to what Kitch is saying in that yeah. if you go award categories, for example, I mean, they're, they're a little bit in flux now, but the basic Hugo Award categories for fiction were established more than 50 years ago when there was essentially a unified readership of science fiction. Yeah. And since then, they expanded to, I guess, maybe they include a lot more fantasy. But by and large, you have exactly the situation the kid just talking about, where you have five or six or seven or eight competing readerships trying to choose one novel, which we're calling a science fiction novel. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> maybe the thing is that we have the wrong awards. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> You know, I have to say my stomach heaves at the thought of, you know, yet another set of awards. And there are all kinds of, like, small awards that are given for specific topics. 
you know, so that the there is an award for like yeah. best story involving moon travel, for instance. But there's, but they're not. We've never had any sort of systematized thing the way the romance or the mystery people do. I think that's true, and I, but I, I don't see us setting up, you know, sort of the best cozy spaceship story award. You know, I mean, yes, it would give uh, David Weber a chance to win something, but um, I don't, yeah. you know, and I, and I don't see how we're going to. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I don't say that I despair. And one of the real problems, and my own approach to this is deeply contradictory, and I know it is, because on one hand, I love our awards. You know, I do. I, I, I love seeing the the other nebulas presented. I love being able to either like or despair at what they recognize. Yeah. I, <laughs> You know, I, I love doing the same thing with the Hugos. I mean, arguably the most enjoyable parts of the Hugos, and I've been honoured and delighted to be nominated for them, um, is the, the discussion that goes around them, seeing how the process goes, seeing the ballot come out. Again, you know, recognising it or despairing at it, uh, seeing the results, follow, you know, reading what you know, all the stats around them, and all that kind of thing. They're a great social thing for our field as much as a recognition okay. of excellence. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, part of, like you say, part of what we do is we give ourselves awards. Um, But maybe that's just part of what we do, you know. (laughs) So, well, I mean, isn't isn't that a part of the outsider status that science fiction and fantasy have for so long? That essentially, I'm I'm going back probably to the early 1950s when the International Fantasy Awards existed before the awards did. But basically, there's a recognition early on that none of our tribe is ever going to get a Pulitzer or a National Book Award, uh, or for that matter, an Edgar Award. So we'll just create our own. Yeah. But now we, we are, Gary. Well, no, we may have overdone it. Well, no, but what I mean is, but even that motivation is surely disappearing. I mean, uh, when Octavia Butler can get a MacArthur grant. Or Juno Diaz. Or Juno Diaz, sure. No. But, but, but I mean, Octavia is much more clearly one of ours, if you like. Yes. You know, she was a, a, a stone-cold science fiction writer, I mean, whereas Juno's work skirts it, you know. Uh, yeah. If that can happen, uh, if, if, if some science fiction writers, whether it be Le Guin or somebody else, can be considered for the biggest awards in literature at times, then some of the need for that mechanism surely has dissipated. And also arguably, very arguably, some of that mechanism isn't working as well as it could. Right. Well, you know, Le Guin won, what was it, the National Book Award back in, what, the 80s? Maybe. What, what genre writer has gotten that far since? I mean, how often does that happen? Octavia Butler, yes. Um, but who else? I mean, that's the thing. It's like, yes, it does happen, but, you know, Octavia's the exception. Lisa, Lisa Goldstein won the National Book Award. Oh, the Ameri- yeah, the National Book Award, didn't she? It was for the Red the American Award. For one year, they changed it to the American Book Award, and they created a category, I think, called paperbacks, and she won in that category. It still was considered in one, though. Uh, I mean, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to say there's no uh, barrier and no kickback, but it's much different than it was in the 50s. You know, it's much, oh, yes, yes, definitely that. But still, if you at something like a Pulitzer or a National Book Award ballot or a Booker ballot, uh, you might. It's, it's a reasonable reasonable assumption that at some point a Michael Chabon or a Jonathan Leithman, uh will get nominated for a National Book Award or a Pulitzer. Yeah, Award. but 2312 uh, won't. Uh, but 2312 won't. Well, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. My point is that um, you're not going to have a Kim Stanley Robinson get nominated. No. There still is a line. There may be people 
on the other side of the line who have made it in the mainstream, who identify with us and, are, and, and like us and so forth and so on. But there's still a line as to who is likely to get nominated and who is not. Right, right. And, and that, that line defines what remains of the ghetto. And there are certainly elements of the ghetto that remain. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm always curious. I'm, I watch that line with some interest. You know, it's like seeing how people, you know, how people move to one side of the line or push the line. I think that's what actually happens more often. There are people like Jonathan Latham who just skip right over. But there are people like um, Stan who push, or Kelly, who push the line over just a little bit more yeah. so that there is more room behind them. Somebody like uh, Latham who jumped out of genre, basically. Um, he He's a great sort of outlier for us, but he's just an outlier. He's that, you know, nobody is right behind him the way they are right behind Kelly or right behind Stan mm. or Craig Karen, for that matter. Are we recognizing and awarding and talking about the wrong work? <laughs> hmm. What are you thinking? Um, what right now? Who are we giving the awards to? We are giving the awards to Joe Walton. Joe Walton may become the only person ever to win the World Fantasy, the Nebula, and the Hugo. And the Hugo. Yeah, that's true. She could be it. I mean, yeah. in the same year. For the yeah, same no, year. no, no. Ever. No work has ever no. won all three. Yeah, that's what I mean. One work winning all three. The hat yeah. trick. I'm not sure mm. even any single writer has ever won all three. I have. Okay, okay, sorry. I didn't. No single <laughs> work I then. Looked it up. I looked it up, and there are 14 of us. Okay. Who've won the three awards, but not at one, the most of the same work. So, so I mean, that's, that's obviously an example of work, you know, a work this year that's being lauded widely. Um, you know, I can't even remember what else was on the Hugo ballot. Isn't that awful? I mean, there's George Martin's work, you know. There's whatever the, uh, World Fantasy Ballot. Well, yeah, oh, yeah, the World Fantasy Ballot was weird. It was strange. There, yeah, was it? there was some good stuff on it, but it was an odd ballot, I thought. But then I but often I think do. You make the argument, even, even with Among Others, which is a novel that I love, that if, if you're talking about science fiction or fantasy, or in this case, weirdly, a fantasy looking back upon science fiction, that there's an nostalgia factor in that, certainly. I mean, that, that novel evokes what it was like at that age to be discovering Zelazny and Tolkien and thinking that they were the best writers ever. So there's some of that in that. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I don't, I don't think that uh, it's necessarily a bad thing that Cory Doctorow revisits classic science fiction titles in his short fiction. Uh, it seems mm -hmm. to me that one, one of the things that the, the field does is to comment on, critique, and subvert itself to some extent. I mean, nostalgia right. does not necessarily mean you're uncritically celebrating the, the, the novels you read when you were 17 years old. It means you're thinking about the uh, issues that were raised by those novels and asking questions about their relevance, and in some cases, deconstructing them in a not very positive way. That's a very bold definition of nostalgia there, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get away with that. Am I going to get away with that? No, you're not going to get away with that. I'm not going to get away with that. No. No, I, I'm charmed, but, you know, looking back at my high school reunion, I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but not convinced. I think, I think one of the underlying anxieties of all this, and I think it's something that everybody feels at a certain point, is that there is this sort of... Um, 
prelapsarian desire to recapture the absolute magic and hypnotism that you felt when you were first reading this stuff. The yeah. first time you found science fiction or fantasy, you want to get that back. And after a certain yeah. point, you can't. Or well, can't very and then once, once in a generation or once in a decade, you do. And that's why you just keep you know, tapping the vein, because you're exactly. just waiting for the next hit. Can, can I stick my hand up and say I'm not convinced by that anymore? Okay. You can um, just hand up and say that. Well, just because uh, I'd like to think that you know, when, when I read, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a 49-year-old reader. I've been reading science fiction and fantasy since, since I was seven years old. I'd like to think I had evolved as a reader and as a person to want more than just the kick I got when I was 13. That I'd want some, something more mature and complex than that. Well, there's a difference between, you know, the sensation of delight and the reasons why you're being delighted. Okay. So you're, you as a reader may be more sophisticated, but you may still be in love with that jolt, which is just coming from different, more mature things now. Yeah. Thank you, kids. That was way more articulate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for me, like, everything comes down to Patrick O'Brien, who has changed my life in a million ways, um, who writes nautical novels. Um, and I thought I was a bitter writer and would never delight in anything again until I started reading those in the mid-80s. They were the first yeah. books in about 10 years that I had read, or mid-90s, in about 10 years that I had read, and I just about wept with joy. Very sophisticated books, very um, complicated, elegant, gorgeously written, eccentric, mm -hmm. they're challenging. Um, but I had the exact same jolt, and I felt it even then, that I had the first time I read The Wizard of Oz. Wow. And I, that's something that, that's why I think, you know, somebody who is still able to feel that jolt, and Jonathan, you are somebody who feels that way, otherwise you wouldn't be an editor, sure. you'd be bitter. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, this year, this year has been a trial, you know, it really has, this year has been a difficult year. It may ch I may change my opinion on it uh, uh, over the next couple of months as I begin to look back, but... Um, not many novels have given me that jolt this year, and fewer pieces of short fiction than I'd have expected have given me that jolt this year. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's happened ha happened It's partly because I don't have the time to read the number of novels that I want, mm -hmm. um, and partly because I get bored easily. I mean, I tried to read the Hydrogen Sonata, the new Ian Banks book. Mm -hmm. I got mm -hmm. I got sixty forty pages into it, and was bored stupid. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. We'll let him know you said so. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be flattered. Well, I'm sure he'll really care. Come on, really. <laughs> I mean, his book will sell well, and the world will love it regardless, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I, I mean, I look back and I think, have I had as many sort of you know, kicks? I mean, I got kicks out of some of the stories last year, and I mean, I'm now looking at the World Fantasy Ballot because we mentioned it, and I can see a couple of things on there that did give me that kick. You know, when uh, Lily Yu's story gave me that kick last year, you yeah. know, um, I, I often get it from Karen Fowler. You know, I think her stuff's terrific. Yeah. Um, but you know. I, I'd like to think it was more common than it is. I'd like to think that it's getting... Well, m maybe what we're really talking about wanting from the field isn't what... And others may want it, but isn't necessarily this systematic evolution of the field. It's a combination of unflinching, fi fi unflinching fiction that gives us that response that, we, that you're talking about that we got when we were younger readers. Yeah, that could be it. And we also want cozies. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and there's nothing yeah. wrong with that, you know. 
It is among right. have, you, have you both read Among Others? No, I have not. Well, because oh, I'd like to ask you both, but I'll ask you quickly then, Gary. Do you think it's a cozy? Not at all. Okay. I, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying that I think it is, but it is a nostalgic book for middle-aged science fiction fans. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have... That does not necessarily make it a cozy. There are real dangers in that book, and I think the fantasy plot... If you look at it as a fantasy novel, it's not in any way a cozy. It's a, it has to deal with very difficult, extremely okay. difficult parents. Yeah. Um, if you look at her refuge that she takes in science fiction and fantasy as a child, yeah, that, that has a cozy, nostalgic feeling to it. But that's extracting that aspect of the plot from the major plot involving her family, which is fairly threatening. Do you think the narrative around the discussion around that book and others are missing the point often? I think they may be. Um, I'm, there's a novel I've read by, um, I, I, I can't mention it, I guess, a very prominent fantasy writer, which has some things and elements, some elements in common with, with among others, and a very frightening bit with the narrator's father. Um, now, there are elements in this new novel, which I cannot name, which, which, which also are nostalgic, they're sweet, they're cozy, they're sort of you know, English Midlands warmth and, and, and so forth and so on. It's, it's really in the context of what, in some ways, is a horror story. And I think the same thing's true with Among Others. I think what we tend to do when we look at only at the nostalgia part of those stories is to extract the parts that we like and recognize and feel comfortable with and sort of put the other aside. Okay. Let me ask you both a different question, but uh, one that I think sits alongside it as we slowly re- you know, sort of drift past our hour-long our limit. And that is, have you read anything lately that gives you those two kicks, that gives you the feeling that something's moving forward and gives you that feeling you had when you were a young reader who was excited and sparked and interested. Kidge? Oh, gosh. Let's see. What have I been reading? The Castle of Toronto, Princess of Mars, Interview <laughs> with the Vampire, and uh, Watership Down. So <laughs> I may be the wrong person to ask because I'm prepping for this next class. Well, if, if you, but, if so let me think about it while Jerry answers. But, I mean, isn't... Isn't a work that succeeds, and I would not necessarily put Castle of Toronto in this category, uh, isn't it going to give you something of that kick when you go back to it 20 or 30 or 40 years later? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, was I, mean, with, um, I had a conversation with Mary Rickert a, a couple of years ago, and we were comparing notes on things that we read as kids and then came back and read again. It turns out for both of us it was The Once and Future King. Uh, it was D.H. White. And I remember coming back, I haven't read it in years and years, but I remember every time I went back to it, it came, it, it just had the same effect on me. Yeah. Had the same um, thing happen to Watership Down, that happens for me. Castle of Toronto, less so, but Watership Down, that happens for me every time. So, you know, okay. that's, and that's one of the things, is I'm one of those happy readers who can reread something again and get the same dull type the first time. So I just keep going back to my drugs of choice, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which we all can a little bit, I guess. <laughs> well, I guess we should maybe wind up because we are getting to, you know, we are past our hour-long limit, our self-imposed limit for the what I originally was going to call the Cood Street Hour, but is now just the Cood Street Podcast. Well, it seems so, safer that way. <laughs> but it's been a delight having you back with us, Kidge, and I hope Thanks. we'll get to do it again. 
I really hope so too. I always love talking oh. to you guys, and <laughs> yeah, you, uh, right it's here, always sure. entertaining for me, anyway. And for us, it's been a, a joy. And we'll talk more about your work. I mean, I feel we kind of like skipped around your work a little bit this time, but maybe we'll talk more about Sorry. what you're doing as time comes along. That is okay, and uh, <laughs> All right. just happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and Gary, I guess I'll talk to you next week. Next week, uh, next week is still okay for you. You got your daughter's birthday. Oh party. yes, I'll work around that. Don't worry. Okay. We'll figure <laughs> something out then. Well, okay. Then, farewell. And we are now, as ever, fighting against being the Mullahs of Cood Street. Bye. Ah. Bye.